We'll take our reading in Luke chapter 15, a continuation in our uh, work through of Luke's gospel, and we're coming to what's historically been known as the parable of the lost son or the parable of the prodigal son. So Luke 15 and verse 11 is where we'll start our reading. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in my living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. If you look back up to the top of the chapter, we see the audience to whom Jesus was speaking. Verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. That was the reason for the Lord then sharing the three parables, which uh, are an increasing um, parable. They're almost one parable in three sections. You've got, well, we've already considered the one sheep from among a hundred, something that might be considered uh, not worthless, but yet the shepherd goes out after the one and brings it back. And there's a lesson for us in our throwaway consumer society today. I was talking with somebody recently and in a Sunday school lesson they were sharing how they looked at this very thing and the kid said, you just ignore that one. You've got 99, why bother? 
And that was the response of younger kids. Might even afflict us today as well. But then there's the one silver coin among the ten. That's of significantly more value. And the person goes and seeks and finds the coin. Then there's rejoicing. So there's an increasing value in a sense that the Lord is teaching as he works his way through this elongated parable, which is split into three. He's really, the Lord is challenging the Pharisees in their self-righteous attitude towards what they considered to be the riffraff of society. And that challenge comes to us as well, because this parable, I'd like to say is the parable of the lost sons, plural. Both sons were alienated from the father. The self-righteous leaders that the Lord was so angry at for their attitude towards him spending time with tax collectors and sinners, the riffraff of society, those who have disregarded the things of Judaism. He's so angry about that that he brings in this elongated parable and here it comes to its culmination with the parable of the two sons. And he conveys what was a remarkable story, and we'll see why that was as we work our way through it. We should say this is not an allegory. There's a difference between a parable and an allegory. An allegory is a story that's used where you're to equate one thing with another thing. And for many people, it's always been the case that the Father has been equated with God the Father. That's not it at all. Jesus was using a, a human example that demonstrates something of the love of God. But the love of God is way far beyond and above what is given here. The two uh, sons that are alienated from the father do speak to all of society. Those who have rejected the things of religious observance and religion and those who have accepted it and live their lives that way. It does come to them and it shows a reaction. And Jesus' main point is to get the Pharisees, the religious elite, to realize that they are as lost as the riffraff of society that they consider to be damned people. That was Jesus's point. The younger son is alienated from the father through a life of self-realization or self-discovery, or it might be termed today in our culture as authenticity. It's uh, be who you are. So we can see that as Jesus taking the group of the tax collectors and the sinners, and it's representative of them, but not just of them, but of ourselves as well. The older son, he is alienated from the father by a life of self-salvation. It's describing the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and addressing them directly but also more widely, it applies to us. Looking at the, the room here, we are all those who say that we are religious. Uh, we are believers in the Lord Jesus. So the message of this can apply to us. Maybe we can see ourselves in some aspects of this as well. Self-realization or self-discovery or Authenticity, as it's known today, is you be who you are. Be who you were meant to be. We notice with the younger son, the younger son who was down the pecking order in terms of what would be inherited. We have to try and put ourselves back into 
uh, the society at the, t at the time, and that's where it's difficult for us. But back then, a family's holding was absolutely everything. It was that which gave them status in society. And the older son usually would be the one to inherit all of it. The younger son usually would have to um, be patient and get whatever was given. But you have this impudent younger son coming forward and he wants the father and everything that he stands for to be gone. He really wants him dead. That's what he says when, Father, give me what I am entitled to. Society back then, it was permitted that a father, upon a request from the sons, would divide the inheritance between the sons that he had. Now that was just in theory. It didn't mean that he was handing over the value of that inheritance until the time that he died. This is an important thing. We see here that in verse 13, it says, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. The father in this story did something that there is no record of in other literature of this time, in this whole matter of the allocation of inheritance. Not only was there this theoretical apportioning of the family's holdings between the sons that then could be realized by the sons upon the father's death, but the father, in an extravagant show of love, in the face of being rejected, gives the younger son the right to turn that inheritance into ready cash. That just did not happen. That jeopardized the whole family's status and holding, and it brought shame on the whole family name uh, from the community that they were part of. What does the son do with those funds? He goes off, and it says that he lives a wild life as he's trying to find himself and be who he thinks he is. It says that it's a wasted life because all of his money suddenly is gone, that inheritance that was shared. Not only that, not only is it wasted with while living, but he becomes enslaved. He ends up having to sell himself so that he might in some way survive. In addition to that, then he's empty too. Uh, he's gone out seeking so much in terms of fulfillment and self-discovery, and he f ends up being empty. And not only that, he ends up being alone. He says nobody gave him anything. He was completely disregarded. There's a fine description of the sinner who has turned away from God, seeking to find life in ourselves with God excluded, thinking that we can find ourselves. We'll find that life is a waste of a life. We'll find that we become enslaved to things even though we might not see it. Uh, we'll end up feeling empty and quite often we feel alone. There's numerous stories today in our society of people who have come into lots of money either through ingenuity of themselves or maybe through inheritance and they've squandered it and suddenly all the friends and the prestige that they had amongst them just evaporates and goes and they're left with nothing. And so often so many then see a wasted life and will decide to end it all. 
It's a frightening state to be in. But we see how the Father deals with the wayward son. So the wayward son who has gone off, he has shown before he leaves this extraordinary love that not only would the inheritance be apportioned to him, but then he would be permitted. And this is why it would have been shocking to the Lord's hearers. He was permitted to go and turn it into cash. That should never happen before the death of the father. That's why we say that the younger son, when he came and he said, give me what is mine, and then turns it into cash, he really wanted nothing to do with the father. Paul says in his writings in the book of Romans that sinners in their minds are hostile to God. Quite often you'll speak of or speak to people who don't know the Lord Jesus as their saviour, who don't believe in God, and they'll say, it's nothing to me. There's actually within this, this hatred, I'd rather you weren't there, whereas Paul does say that our conscience and everything around us does tell us that God exists. What the father did is really interesting. The NIV translates, it says that he shared his property between them. So he shares the property between the younger son and the older son. The word for property in the Greek is bios. And that word means life. You find it translated that way elsewhere. Here was the father who, with this rejection of his love and the hatred shown to him by the younger son, is prepared to take it and he is prepared to jeopardize his own livelihood, his own life as a demonstration of love to the one who has rejected him. He endures the loss of honor and the pain of rejected love. He brings upon himself the shame of the whole of society. And also then there is this jeopardy that comes with reduced financial stability. It's not a good situation. You know, in that society, the son would then have become an outcast. Um, commentators who've looked into the various documents that would surround this, say that there was even something that the village people would do. They would enact a ceremony to show that this person was now cut off and was gone. In fact, if the person was then to return, they would make sure that, that was reinforced by doing the thing again. The outcast who's done this sort of thing would not be allowed to come back. But we see the father maintaining his affection, not only in having jeopardized his own life to share the inheritance and allow the son to turn it into ready cash, but you have the sense of him watching and waiting for the son to come back. And then you see that the father, when he sees him a long way off, heads off running down the road to meet him. Uh, people have said that those of dignity with long flowing robes, they did not run in that society. You see this man probably hitching up his robes. It's a very wonderful image. And he heads off down that road to meet his son. It's out of love for him. His own love for him that he would restore his son, but also that his son would be welcomed by him so that the village people could not do what they would normally do, i.e. pronounce him an outcast and someone who could not be brought back in. So you see the father running. Kisses him over and over again after hugging him. That's a sign of acceptance. He endows him with the best robe. Now, the best robe would have been his own. And he tells the servants, go and get the best robe. Who had the best robe in the house? The father. 
who's saying, what is mine is yours. He gives them a ring, most likely the signet ring with which they would sign off the documents that were involved in financial transactions. Here he was given the rights of the heir. He's also told to put sandals on his feet because he was not going to be any servant. That's, servants would have been normally barefoot back then. Here was one whose feet would be covered. And then I think what is the most wonderful image in all of it is that he throws the best uh, of banquets and parties. So much so that the noise of it in terms of the music and the dancing, the dancing is heard by the older son from a distance. Now it's good when you can hear dancing in a distance. But you have this, this picture of an amazing love of the father having given the son everything of his love at the outset and he goes. And then he's watching and waiting and he goes to receive him before the, the boy can be pronounced by the village that he's not welcome. He says, no, he's back and he's with me. And with that, he is brought back in to become an heir again. And you notice what that means. It means that the reduced holdings of the family, and because he's gone off and squandered a third of it or more, what's left is now redistributed again. So the older son's getting a bit of a raw deal, isn't he? What are the lessons for us that we can, we can see that from this father in his dealing with the son? We can see that there is an image here of God's greater love that can deal with any sin and rebellion. And he is watching and waiting for the sinners to return. For those who've turned their back on religious life and thought, no, that's not for me, I'll just discover myself and go my own way. He is watching and waiting for the return. But for that return, there needs to be something that was evidenced in the life of the young man. The repentance. Notice he says, and before heaven and before his father, he had sinned. A recognition that what we do counts in heaven as well as it counts here on earth. A repentance and a humility to come to God and say, I have offended heaven and I have offended the people of this world. Receive me. And also that forgiveness is costly. This wasn't just a, a, an open-armed welcome that cost nothing. It cost the father his life and the jeopardy of his own life. And we can think of that when God gives his own son to be the one to bear the wrath of God in the place of sinners. He is the one of greatest value who has been given for us. But then let's think about this matter of self-salvation. We see this in the older son. Here was earning the right to the inheritance by living according to the, the moral expectations of the family and also the wider community in the village. But yet he hated every aspect of it. Seems as though he just did it uh, and just, just hated every moment of it. Commentators of the literature of the time would tell us that the older son on the occasion of the younger son coming and showing the disrespect to his father that he did and asking for the inheritance and also the permission to turn it into ready cash, the older son, even if he had an issue and hated his brother, still had a responsibility in that culture to be the one to broker 
a restoration of relationship between the father and the younger son. He had an obligation to his father to make sure that there was a restored relationship that would preserve the name of the family. So we have an older son because it says he's there in a sense because it says that the father uh, divided up the inheritance between them. He divided his life between them. You have the sense that the older son was there and remained silent and didn't do what was expected of the older son in that society to secure a resolution to the situation that would have been for the good of the family and bring glory to God and for the good of the wider society as well. He was to intervene positively to bring about a restoration. He was to mediate out of respect for the father and he didn't probably shows that there was a relational problem between him and his father back then too. And we see that coming out whenever the younger son returns and he hears the noise of it. And as he comes in from the field after a long day's work, he's asking what is going on. The older son responds with anger. And did you notice that when he addresses the father in this society, how you address people was so important and you gave respect where respect was due, he didn't refer to him as father. He just says to him, look. <laughs> you notice that? Look, verse 29, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. He addresses the father without his title of reverence, no respect. He resents the father's authority. And this is from a lifetime, probably, of having resented the father's authority. This son has no love for the father either. The younger son had no love. He wanted the father done away with. Here the older son is demonstrating a lack of respect that says effectively the same thing. He shows hatred towards his brother and hatred towards his father. You never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. See what that means? While he had been given a portion of the inheritance, he had not been given the right, like his brother, to turn that into cash so he could go and get himself a goat so he could have a party with his mates. I haven't done that. But when this son of yours, he says, it's verse 29 to 30, who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Notice that he doesn't refer to him as his brother. He says he's your son. He's a despicable one. He's been off and he's squandered all of his wealth and prostitutes. You know what that points to? They actually had heard something of what the son was up to when he was off, enjoying his route to self-discovery. What would the older son have been expected to do in that society? He would have been expected to go and rescue his brother from his predicament. Didn't do that. He resents that he was not given the authority that he thought he was due. Here's the Lord addressing the self-righteous religious leaders of the day, saying to them, you think you've got it all. And actually your heart is so far away from God. You're keeping all the rules. You're doing everything. You've never disobeyed in your own estimation, but your heart is so far away from loving the God who gave you the rules and who has offered you the inheritance, you're just as lost as the tax collectors and sinners that I'm spending time with 
they're coming to their senses and understanding that they need salvation. You chaps haven't seen it yet. That's what the Lord is saying. Do you notice how the father responds to this son as well? He goes out to him in love because the son stands outside and petulantly refuses to come in. The father was watching and waiting for the wayward son and he ran out to meet him. Here again, the father shows his heart of love for this other wayward son and he steps out of the house. He is the most honoured of the people that were there because he was the host, had to step out of that and to go and address his son and he does so in love. And then he goes about showing him and demonstrating to him that the family inheritance is not everything. What is more important is the, is the restoration of a life. He was dead, but he's alive. He was lost, but he's found. And the repetition of that to this older son. And there's that lovely phrase in verse 31. He says, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Here was the promise that was being made by the father to the older son that everything that was his was his. But actually the son was in jeopardy here of losing it all because he was showing such disrespect to the father because he thought that by his rule keeping he would inherit it all. There was the appeal by the father for that broken relationship to be restored and for love to be there in his heart. The Lord leaves this one on a cliffhanger and it's for the Pharisees then in their own minds to answer, well, what happens next? Because the Lord's really been going at them. The father has this conversation and we don't know if the older son climbed down off his self-righteous pedestal and was prepared to come into the feast to rejoice in a life that was lost, that had been restored, that he himself would realize that his life was a lost one and that he could enjoy the massive celebration that the father had about his family. We don't learn of that. And it was for the Pharisees to think that went over. We see lessons in this too, that being good as opposed to being bad, for whatever we might qualify good and bad to be, does not earn us a place in God's inheritance. So many people live life by saying, I'm a good person, and they think that if God exists, that's going to be enough. And so many people who say that God exists and who observe his rules are doing so in order to earn his approval. And God says we can't do that. The only one who has earned his approval in the completeness of his humanity was Jesus Christ. And he is the one he has given to die so that sinners would be made righteous by his death, by their faith in his death and resurrection. It also would show to us, and this is to us as religious people here, that any judgmental attitude that we would have towards any others shows that we have not been transformed by the grace of God as we should. There's no place among those who claim that Christ is Savior and that God is their God 
that Jesus is Lord, who welcomed everybody to him. There is no place for racism, for classism, for sexism. No place for him. There's a lesson here for the religious who would at times have a tendency to look down on others in their waywardness and themselves become wayward with that very attitude. Christ died for everyone. For, I can't say firstly, but it's in the order of the parable. Firstly, for those who embrace their rebellion and want to live their autonomous life by trying to find themselves with all that this life can give them and they never love God. Christ died for them. But he also died for those who mask their rebellion with a veneer. And they still are the same on the inside, wanting to live their own lives by living it in a good moral way, maybe according to the things that God has said in his word, but by their own standards, picking and choosing what is appropriate. And maybe to fit in with the expectations of family and society or even a church group but yet never loving God either. Both groups are on their way to a lost eternity. And Jesus was saying here, I've come that they might have life. I've come to seek those that are lost and to find them. 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, Paul says this, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. Here was Paul, the best of the religious Jews of his time, and he had to be brought to his face in the dust before the person of Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and realize that his heart was as far from God as the people he looked down on, as the riffraff of society. This is a message for all of us, and a reminder to those of us that are trusting in the Savior, that it's not about what we do that earns our salvation. He has earned it for us. But that then means that what we do flows out of that and should shape and characterize our lives. And that means that we should be demonstrating a love like the father of the story. Going out and going out and welcoming and bringing them to the feast. Let's pray.